morning, Regen family. I am, if you haven't met me, because I see some new faces, I'm still relatively new myself, but I'm Kayla. I'm the children's ministry intern for the next few weeks here, and I'll be doing announcements. So for starters, our pastor Kyle and Stephanie Tennant just had their baby last Saturday, so praise God for that. Um, he's a week and a day old, yeah. Um, and on top of that, like addition to that, they're actually, um, there's a link online. It was sent out an email and on Facebook, I believe. And uh, the church family is just signing up to take them a meal. It's called like takeameal.com. And so that's pretty easy if you're willing and able to do that. Um, just go ahead and sign up. We also have the marriage conference coming up, and that's February 23rd. We have professors from Moody Bible Institute, because I'm a junior there. And um, they're coming in, and they're going to just blow us away with their wisdom and knowledge and Um, They came last year. People loved them. And so we actually just posted the registration links for that this past week, and that's been through email. Our Reconnect has it, and online, Facebook, Instagram, everywhere you go. Um, Circles are up and running, back in action. Student circles today, we're going to be at what bowling alley? Freeway lanes, lanes, the ungreasy bowling alley. (laughs) Okay. And that's at 6 o'clock. And then... Other circles, does someone from another circle want to say when yours is? Because I don't know. Anyone? Tuesday and Wednesday at what time? 6.30. Okay. Awesome. One in Cortland, one in Hallen. Tuesday, Wednesday, both at 6.30. Okay. Thank you. And then the next thing, we're just going to pray for our offering. Um, here we just pass the buckets back and someone will be around to collect them. Um, so yeah, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that we can gather together as a family today um, and just glorify you and get to know you more. Um, I just pray over these um, gifts that you've given us that um, we have the chance to give back to you. I pray that they can go to fulfill your ministry in this community and in your people. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful to be here with you today and be with each other. And you are beyond astronomically big. Um, There is no definition for how involved you are with our lives. So God, I just pray that the words that come out of my mouth are yours today and that they sink deep into the hearts of everybody here and move us, move us to be different, move us to be the way that you want us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Oh yeah, so um, the kids can go back with Miss Kayla and have all sorts of fun back there. Good luck getting your fingers out of that uh, trap there, buddy. Uh, Well, I own this computer, I just don't know how to turn it on. There we go. So as Kayla said, um, I'm sure you guys are all aware now, I'm uh, standing here because our uh, good friend Kyle and and Stephanie, they had their baby. So I'm just super excited uh, about that. And I just wanted to address a couple things to them before I get started. So, um, you know, about five years ago, uh, Kyle, um, Kyle and Stephanie ran into Jen and I at a, at a, 
ice cream shop and um, it's only by the grace of God and the uh, the kindness of him that like I'm standing here in this current moment today so uh, they've been a huge impact on me and um, you know I've gotten to walk with them along their journey uh, that that was completed last Friday uh, and I'm just so grateful to be a part of that and you know um, C.S. Lewis said in a book of his uh a grief observed, he talked about how um, he was referring to his, his wife passing, and he said about her that he didn't want anything that resembled her. He didn't want a, um, a replica. He didn't want the idea of her. He wanted her, and uh, that made me really think about Kyle and Stephanie and their journey, and <clears throat> he framed that also in the idea of of Jesus. He said, I don't want this idea of Jesus, um, my own my own ideas are going to be something false. And what we need on a daily basis is for God to come in and wreck that idea. He, God is the great iconoclast. He's going to constantly himself destroy our ideas of what we have of him. And um, along Kyle and Stephanie's journey, I was so fortunate to watch them mature. And I feel that we got to see, all of us got to see God destroy their ideas of who they thought he, he was. And, um, and it was all for the better because our God is only good. And when he does what he does, the only good things happen. And what we can see now, Kyle, is that, and Stephanie, is that the fact that he did that, that is our, our gift to you and us, that, that he was with us. The fact that he changed your opinions of him is our proof that he was actually with us. And isn't it ironic um, that the ultimate way that God did that himself was when he came as a baby and uh, now you have one of your own. So uh, we're super grateful for that. Um, So uh, we're here in the midst of this series, Practicing the Way, which presupposes our behavior uh, that we currently have is not quite the way. Uh, But why? Why can't we just stay as we are right now? As Christians, we believe our destiny is eternal life either with or without the Father, um, or either with with or without God. And we're eternally saved by our faith in Jesus, so what gives? Um, So if you didn't know, uh, I am a strength conditioning coach. That would be helpful. Um, I'm a strength and conditioning coach, I'm a baseball coach, I'm a nutrition coach. So teaching practices and teaching habits uh, is, is really all I do on a daily basis. I provide the means uh, by which my clients and athletes can attain a result, but it's, it's never that simple. Um, ideally, the change process begins with an understanding of exactly who you are, your identity, your values, and your priorities. Uh, and exactly what you want, which would be your purpose and where you want to go. And today I'm going to stand here and say that until we have an emotionally juicy why, uh, you'll never understand those things. If we don't, you'll never understand those uh, pieces of us until we have this emotionally juicy why. And it's because of this why people get motivated to act a certain way, whether they know it or not, or in other words, actions that people have match their identity. So step one to finding our why as, as regarding practicing the way is to figure out who we are. But 
when people come to me, most people just say they want to lose weight. And then they expect radical success by showing up to the gym. But I say at every assessment with, with prospective clients that you can come to the gym five days a week. You can do everything that you want. But if you aren't practicing something else the, the other 24 days of the week, there's going to be very little to no physical changes. All right? um, but don't get me wrong. Exercise is physically and mentally healthy for you. There's a lot of value in it. You get to meet new like-minded people. Uh, you get to have some fun. You're a part of a community all moving towards the same goals. There's accountability. There's teaching. You're happy and you're, and you're proud of what you're doing. It makes you feel good and motivated to do better when you leave. But you don't most of the time. Sounds familiar, right? So practicing the way just once a week isn't going to do it, fam. It's just not going to do it. So, but that's only true if we're expected to practice the way of Jesus, if we're expected. So to break down the math here so far, we've got um, some stuff up here. So it says values plus priorities plus time equals our disciplines, okay? And the triangle there is identity plus those disciplines are going to equal our actions. So that's in the general sense. This is general life. This has nothing to do with Christianity as of yet. Values plus priorities plus time equals disciplines. Our identity flows into disciplines and our disciplines create actions. Right. Now, you may call me a cynic, but I believe, like my clients, our aspirations of practicing the way won't be consistent over time if we don't come up with this why. Before I get into that, I want to make sure that we orient our orient ourselves on practicing the way. So the last two weeks has been super heavy for me. I mean, I had conversations with multiple people, with Art and Art's friend and my new friend now, Tony. Um, I had conversations with Joey and a, um, another friend of mine, his name's Skip. And I was so unsure about this message because the stuff that I'm going to talk about here in a moment is something that our society just wants to really uh, w just tamp down and, and, and even go the opposite way of. Um, so it's, it's been difficult for me to speak on, and I had two, two weeks to write the sermon, and I assure you, I used every single day of that two weeks and got up at 5 a.m. this morning to continue finishing it. All right, so uh, it's, and I've written this sermon about seven different times. All right, so I could, I, I don't know. So this, this is what's going to come out. Uh, yeah, so uh, my initial thought when, when I started this was, how can a person who wouldn't claim to practice all the spiritual disciplines himself, who is a sinner himself, stand up here and tell everyone else what to do and why to do it and how to do it? Um, and it's those last sentences that I just said that catches my first point that I want to make. Here are some actual thoughts from me while writing this sermon. Am I worthy enough? Am I valued enough? Am I smart enough? Am I wrong about this? Should I be talking about this? What will they think of me? Zach, you say true things very sharply. You're going to hurt someone's feelings again. Hey, what about this one? Am I like Kyle enough? But forget about Kyle in a nice way, of course. <laughs> Am I like Jesus enough to be telling you about how to act like Jesus? The point is that I felt 
and anticipated while writing this, ser- this sermon, shame. And as I felt shame about speaking to you, I felt fear. As shame always precedes fear. At one point, Kyle thought it might be best to have someone else come up and preach. But he said that he trusted the spirit, me, the spirit in me, but I didn't trust the spirit in me. And it's important that you remember that. The shame business is a messy subject with a lot of expert opinions. It carries with it all sorts of correlations like addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. I'm not here to disagree with the research, but I will say that correlation doesn't equal causation. And outside of that just being true, because it is, it's truer because of one reason, Jesus Christ. And all the Christians here that have been Christians for longer than me say, hallelujah, good job, Zach, you figured it out. You know, welcome to the club. Um, But let me explain, I'm not trying to use circular reasoning to prove my point. Uh, This is, that understanding is, is, is very important to trying to figure out what our why is. So somewhere in the previous seven messages I wrote, I lined up discussion points about different cultures, which would be guilt and innocence cultures, which is mostly ours. Um, Other ideas would, we may be a shame and fame culture, but neither here nor there, but there's shame and honor cultures, there's fear and power cultures. And these cultures help determine why people do what they do in those cultures. Then then I was writing about relativism and secularism or how about generations used previous and even now use and abuse shame. We've got the ultimate platform to do that with social media. Um, But yada, yada, yada. Uh, If you're interested, I'm sure you guys can look all this stuff up. It's It's really cool and it might give you a good understanding of where we stand in this country. But the ultimate problem and the point I wanted to make was that with those, within those previous seven versions, uh, for so many Christians, the context of shame and fear has been completely removed from our consciousness. The context of shame, the context of shame and fear has been completely removed from our consciousness. And that can create a serious problem for our ability to fully grasp who God is. Now, I know that that might seem shocking to some of you, and that's what I was talking about, because it's so common for us nowadays to say, no, no, we should never feel shame. Shame, shame is not a part of our culture anymore. Okay. Earlier, I said I felt shame and fear, and I didn't trust the spirit inside me. But I didn't say I felt guilty. I thought what I had to say was right, and that's all that mattered. And probably what padded that thought was just a shallow understanding of Christianity. Oftentimes it's easy to fall into the trap of believing it's all about God's sovereignty and it has nothing to do with our own responsibility in response to his, uh, in, in response to what he's done for us. So in that understanding of Christianity, there is no context for shame and fear. In the context of it's all God doing everything and I don't have to do a single thing, There is no context for shame and fear for us. And that makes sense why somebody would say like, no, no, we shouldn't feel shame. We shouldn't feel fear. And when those, but when those two paralyzing feelings inevitably come for us, because I don't think anybody can sit here and say that and raise their hand and say they've never felt shame and they've never felt fear. 
when those two feelings, those two negative feelings come for us, outside of the context of intense love and the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ, then that is when we can slip into those negative correlations that I mentioned earlier. That's when we start to feel hopeless. That's when we start to feel like, oh, I can't get up in here and talk about Jesus Christ to all these people who are just like me. Here's the twist, though, and this is what I've been really excited about the past few days. Since, since Thursday, I like, had this breakthrough. Uh, I was, you know, what I've found recently is um, through music, I've really been able to hear God's voice so much more, and I've never had that. And um, recently, uh, it seemed like God was really speaking to me through the lyrics of certain songs. And on Thursday, I was able to just really hear the Spirit's voice. And that was like one of the most confident days that I've had in the past two weeks. It was so confident. On Friday, I just took the whole day off. And uh, we'll just say that I watched some TV on Netflix. I won't tell you what I was watching, but it, it's, not, it's not Christian. Right? So, uh, so, that, so I took Friday off, and, um, and I just felt really good about what the Spirit had to say to me. And uh, so, and here it is. When I restore all the honor and all the power back to God, then the only kind of shame and fear, I'm sorry, let me go back. Uh, When I restore Jesus as the ultimate context, the shame and fear I felt about the sermon doesn't go away. You see, I was giving this church and each one of you, and if I'm being honest, my ego, all all the power and all the honor. I was thinking those things needed to be preserved like this is some kind of talent show or like my voice is the most important thing in the room. But when I restore all the honor and all the power back to God, then the only kind of shame and fear I can feel comes from my place, my lowness relative to him and his highness. Okay? Now that might seem like a little down and a little like, no, no, Zach, you're, you're not low. Okay? Yes, we have shame. I said above I wasn't guilty for not trusting in him and all that matters was me being right. But after humbling and restoring honor to God, it is very clear, after seeing my place relative to God's place, it's very clear to see how shameful it is to believe that I am not guilty for not trusting in God. It's easy for me to see how shameful it is to believe that I am not guilty for not trusting in God. The God who is love, who's perfect community, who is trust, the God who holds the entire universe together by the word of his power and who is a consuming fire. And in that context, if I say I don't need God, I'd have to be pretty arrogant to say that fear isn't a legitimate response. There's no safer place than in the community that is God. What was I thinking? So, if we take a look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, I just want to bring up um, just an example of, of what we, how we can see this in the Bible. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. 
And they were calling to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And in Job, we see, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You guys feeling a little heavy from this yet? All right, because you should. It is heavy. And some of us have even heard Kyle quote one of his professors, I believe, who believes that for the first 10,000 years of being in heaven will be on our faces, a place of, sh- a place of shame, a place of, low- a place of lowness relative to the person that we're on our faces in front of. That language from Kyle's professor and those scripture verses reveal to us what I call common Christian shame. And this common Christian shame is nothing to be ashamed of. And that's the twist, okay? Because here's the beauty of our God. And no other God does this. So if you ever come across a, you know, a well-intentioned, mostly well-intentioned person that wants to tell us that all religions are basically just the same thing uh, in different ways to the same place, all right, well, check this out. Jesus comes to us. He comes to us, all right? No other religion does that. He comes to us personally and removes our shame as soon as we feel it. The shame that we rightfully feel, he removes it before, before we even want to talk about it. And he clears the guilt associated with it as soon as we're convicted. We're not obligated to do anything with him. Rather, our God is a servant to us. He shows us his love. Adam and Eve in the garden breaks the covenant with the father. And what's the first thing that the father does after he hands down his sanctions? What's the first thing that he does to Adam and Eve? He gives them clothing. He removes their shame immediately. Yes, they did something shameful, but he took, the, he took their shame away. He said, you don't have to live ashamed of yourself. You don't have to be naked. You don't have to be vulnerable. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father runs to the, to the shameful son, the son that says, I would rather have all of my money and leave you, and it doesn't matter if you die, I'm going to go and take my portion of my estate and take it and do whatever I want with. The father runs to him when he sees him, and what's the first thing he does when he gets there? The son is on his knees in a place of lowness, about to express his sorrow and his guilt and, his, and, and, and try to repent for his shame. And what's the father do? He stops him, and he puts his cloak around him. He clothes him. He removes his shame. Jesus sits between the woman at his feet and her accusers and removes her shame by forgiving her of her sins. But then he says, go and sin no more. And that's super important because her life wasn't over. Her life wasn't determined by all the things that she did. Her life was determined by the God who took her shame away and said, go and sin no more. Her, her life was just beginning. It's not over when Jesus removed her sin. In the story of... In, in Isaiah's story, the seraphim flows, 
flies down and burns his lips, purifies his lips. The thing that he said was shameful. I'm a man of unclean lips. God removes that shame from his lips. And I think that this is the deeper understanding of the cross. He was innocent, but took on our guilt. Yeah, we know that one. We're good at that. But do we understand that he was the most honorable, but he wore the most shame on the cross? Do we understand that he was the most powerful, but he lowered himself so much and he stood in for our death on the cross? And all he expects in return is the ultimate respect from us for those facts and our loyalty. It seems to me when shame is put into this proper context, which is at the feet of Jesus, rather than at the feet of humans and at the feet of churches and uh, other types of organized events, put on, like organized by us, uh, something amazing happens. When I first came a Christian, I... Um, I was, at one of, I was at my gym and a guy who's not a Christian, who's a Christian now, he said, uh, he said what is it about Christianity that, that, that you like? What is it that gets you? And I said, you know, unrehearsed, I didn't think. I was like, there's just a sense of peace that I've never had. There's a sense of peace that I've never had. And peace is the feeling of not having to do the impossible of pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps anymore. Our God clothes us with his honor and power by immediately ushering us to the table where the most honorable family is sitting and the most powerful family in the whole universe is sitting. He ushers us into that. We come to him with shame and he clothes us and puts us at the table with him. That's a position, that is an act of taking somebody from shame to honor. And all it requires is that we turn and face him. I don't know, I may be alone in feeling excited about this. I was really, I was like, yes, this is great. Like, and I've just, in the past couple days, um, I've felt just such a release of um, anxiety about not only about this, but just about things that come after me in my life. Um, just understanding my position before Jesus. He's not just my savior. He's not just my savior. He is something way beyond that, and he deserves all the honor from me. And what that means is he deserves me to treat him with respect. So, yeah, so some of you guys might be like, yeah, yeah, I know that. So what's your point? The point is, is that the question we need to be asking ourselves before we come up with our why is, do we fully accept God as he is revealed to us in his word, or do we just want the parts of his identity that make sense to our current culture? Do we fully accept our God as he is, as he's revealed himself to be, or do we just want the parts of him that we like because our political agenda says that we want to, we want to live this way? And my family says, well, we do it this way. And we can, you can come up with your own examples. At the beginning, I said step one to a lifelong change is figuring out who we are I said identity plus disciplines equal action. Well, I'm going to max out my math skills here for a second. And it's kind of ironic, uh, me talking about triangles, because I dropped out of trigonometry uh, my senior year of high school uh, because 
the, the teacher gave homework on the first day of school and it was the first period. So I was like, I got to go to the bathroom. I went down to the office and changed that schedule real quick. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, uh, my current math skills will be good enough for this at least. Uh, so it's not only our identity. It's our identity defined by God's. God's identity, our identity. Plus the disciplines equals worship. It's not just action, it's worship. So if we have the identity of God and we know the disciplines that God has laid out before us through his word, prayer, meditation, evangelism, silence, solitude. These are, these are, that's a short list of some of the things that God clearly displayed. And that is his, those were some of his way. Then we have worship if we have his identity. We have to have that identity first. Fully recognizing and accepting the God who is revealed completely in the Bible and not making acrobatic jumps around character traits and lessons that some see as flaws is the most important thing that we will ever do in this life. There's nothing more important, not a single thing more important than trying to find out who our God is. If we believe, if we say, if we assent to the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior, we have to figure out who that guy is. If we don't fully grasp his character, everything will be slightly off. Everything we do will be slightly off if we don't fully grasp his character. And by fully grasp his character, I mean what's, what's humanly possible, okay? What's humanly possible due to a lifelong pursuit of him. Did I mention study as a spiritual discipline? I seem to recall lots of scripture, at least a few scripture verses of Jesus, quote unquote, going to the synagogue as he usually does. So what I'm saying is that if we only have partial understanding of him and we aren't pursuing anymore, then we will only have a partial identity of ourselves. Think of yourself as half full, but we don't just stay half full. We're going to fill ourselves up with other stuff and that other stuff we can call idols. Now, our disciplines are dictated by our identity, but if we only have half of our identity informed by God and the other half is who we say we are based on things like like chronological snobbery, which equates to, well, what does a whole bunch of ancient Israelites know about living in 2018? They don't know anything. I'm just going to go with what my culture says about this issue, and we're going to go with that. So, and if we're practicing our way, if that's the way that we look at our Christianity, if that's the way that we look at our practice, we're practicing our way. And if we're practicing our way, who are we worshiping? Who are we giving the honor to in that? And are we even disciples at that point? Because a disciple needs a discipler. And a discipler is, the discipler that we're talking about is not teaching that way. So uh, proper worship of Jesus as his disciples 100% requires three things that I'm going to steal from our good brother, Tim Keller. Thanks, Tim, if you're listening. Uh, finding a new identity, setting a new priority, 
and living in new mercy. So, about getting that new identity, we want to look at Luke 9, 23 through 25. Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I wouldn't be a, uh, a good fellow of the C.S. Lewis Institute in, in Youngstown if I didn't add in at least two uh, references to C.S. Lewis. And I think that C.S. Lewis has a really great um, paragraph on explaining this. And it goes like this. This is C.S. Lewis explaining this verse. He says, give me all of you. This, is, this would be Jesus saying, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you. All of you, I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. It's pretty intense. And we're not going to find our why until we reckon with the fact that we have one ultimate purpose on this earth, and that is to represent God in everything that we do. Because we have been given Jesus to imitate the meaning of our existence is to become like Jesus as much as humanly possible. That is practice. That is the way. When we're discussing setting a new priority, remember our, uh, our disciplines have partial to do with priorities, values, priorities, time. Luke nine fifty seven through 62 addresses that. Um, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Here, here Jesus is basically saying to us, you know what, Kyle, I'm glad that you want to follow me, but you don't get it. You need to go home and really think about what you're getting yourself into. I'm not the savior you, savior you think I am. It's actually the exact opposite of what you're thinking. And look, Zach, you might think the dead parts of your life are important, but I have plans for you to declare life to everyone. So what do you think is more important? And Aaron, my disciples need to be utterly focused 
on me because, I'm sorry, and Aaron, if you don't understand, I always come first, then you aren't fit to be my disciple. My disciples need to be utterly focused on me because my one rule is to love me. Because without me, the power of the kingdom won't flow through you and you won't be a useful, useful vehicle for the kingdom of God. Also think of it this way. If I called out to Dan Stewart and I said, hey, Dan, come up here and help me, but leave Stewart back there. That means I don't actually want him. They're a pair. They come together. Dan can't come without Stuart. Okay? That's impossible. And it's the same with Jesus. He's a package deal as well. There is no separating Jesus the Savior from Jesus my Lord. Lord over my entire life. Thank you, God. I'm at your service, Lord. Or what about this one? This is a good apologetics reference. The distance, just kind of try to put this in your mind. The distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. The distance between the earth and sun is 92 million miles. And let's say that that 92 million miles is the thickness of one sheet of paper. That means the diameter of the galaxy that the sun and the earth are in, the distance of the galaxy would be equal to 310 million miles of those one sheets of paper, okay? So if that confused you, let me keep going. So that 310 million miles is also just one speck of dust in the midst of the entire universe that we see it. One speck of dust. And if Jesus is the son of God who holds the whole universe together, by the word of his power, then is that the person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? No. And here's our why, folks. So living in new mercy, Luke 9, 52 through 60. Let me read this. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And after pondering it, I think Vanessa's sermon a couple weeks ago was right on. If you weren't here, she preached on he was practicing the way and she said that we need to have mercy and we need to have grace. And, and, and that's such, it's so huge. Um, and, and afterwards, after that sermon, I said to her that understanding grace and mercy is really the only way that we can have a healthy discussion about spiritual disciplines. Otherwise, it becomes like in the beginning, it's just a bunch of preachers or whoever up here telling you guys how to do things, right? Like you shameful people, you guys don't pray enough. You guys need to go hit the books. You guys need to go and down to wherever and get silent and, and, and listen. It becomes very shaming if we don't orient ourselves properly. Without grace and mercy first, our understanding of shame and our state of sinfulness is impossible to reverse. 
without grace and mercy first, our understanding of shame and our state of sinfulness is impossible to reverse. Without understanding who God is, we are not going to do anything different. It just isn't going to happen the way, it, way that he wants to do, at least. In those verses above, uh, Luke 9, 52 through 60, um, we have an example of some, di- some disciples not knowing who their Savior is or who their Lord is yet. Their impulse was to kill people who disrespected Jesus. That was their impulse. The people who hung around Jesus all the time, James, Peter's brother, and Peter, their impulse was to kill people. And thank God that's not how our Savior operates because if Jesus was here to call fiery judgment down on everybody that disrespected him, there'd be nothing. We wouldn't be here. All right, so um, it's a good thing Grace and mercy is the flower that stands on the stem of judgment uh, to, to take away from Vanessa's sermon. Um, so, so, no, our why doesn't come from I better do this really well or I'll be judged poorly. That's, that's the toxic shame. You aren't going to do this really well. There's nothing that we can do well enough to earn our way into heaven. There's nothing that we can do well enough to do that. And if you go about that way, you're going to end up like the guy who ended up starting the the whole Reformation, Martin Luther, who spent four hours in confessionals annoying his his priest because he was listing off every little sin that he could possibly think of. I think the term is quorum deo. And that means shame in relation to God. Shame in relation to God. If we take our shame out of, the, out of that relation to God, we have buckets of shame we can't deal with. And there's no amount of works that we're going to be able to do to get out of that. And our why isn't going to come from saying, I have a tough life and bad things have happened to me. So I'm going to do these things that Jesus says because that's going to be the stuff that gets me better. That's works. That's works-based, my friends. All right, so that's not going to get you there either. There is one place in this world that has experienced perfect love, shameful evil, God's judgment, and God's forgiveness all at the same time. Does anybody know what that is? You can yell it out if you, if you know. Our heart, it's actually a place and it's the cross that held Jesus at Calvary. That's the place that all of those things came to converge all at one time. Shameful evil, perfect love, God's judgment and God's forgiveness all came together on Jesus at that point. The only way we change sorry The only way we change our way to the way is by searching for more of the most radical and perfect type of love and mercy ever witnessed on earth. Our path for practicing the way is lit by understanding his mercy and love. Our path for understanding the way is lit by understanding his mercy and love. It's because of his mercy and love he calls us to a higher, more honorable identity. 
It's because of his mercy and love. He calls us to deeper, he calls us deeper into the spiritual practices. He doesn't just call us to the spiritual practices. He calls us deeper into them. He wants us to see him in those. He wants us to have a relationship with him in those. So why should we do anything Jesus teaches us? Why should we pray more? Why should we meditate on his word? Why should we evangelize? Why should we sing our hearts out? Why should we be generous? This isn't rocket science and I have no more nice shapes and, and math for you. We do what he says because he showed us what love is. And as witnesses to that, we said we loved him back. As Christians, we said we loved him back. I love my wife. I don't do things because it's my duty to. I don't do things for my wife because it's my duty. Zach, why'd you get your wife flowers? Oh, it's my duty. How far is that going to get me? I do things to be a better husband because Jesus has showed me what true love is. True love is servanthood. True love is sacrifice. True love is exclusive. You can't go east and you can't go west at the same time. It's exclusive. God's in the west. You have to face that way and walk that way. And true love honors the person you love. And my only duty is to never turn my back on that person. So, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he showed us another example of true love. This was uh, the sacrifice that he made. He said to his disciples, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. And on that same night, he said to the disciples, this is my blood and it's shed for you and many. And this is the new covenant. So I'm going to pray here and then I'm going to open up the table for us to come up and do and, and, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, so we'll just do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word today. Thank you that while we aren't perfect, that, that while we're lower than you, you also made us in your image. So at the same time, we are glorious and we're honorable. You made us to represent you you made us to love you and to love one another. God, I just pray that the words that this family heard today, the words that I said sink deep into our hearts and our minds and we're able to use all of our strength and we're able to use all of our might to be able to do the things that you're calling us to do. These actions, God, not just not just hear the word on Sunday and go about our regular life. God, there are actions that you are calling us to and, and, and we ask for the strength and, and the reason and the why to do that. 
because you know and we know we're not going to do it without you. And that why is you, God. We need your mercy. We need your love. We need your guidance. So we thank you for all of those things that you've already given us. And uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so I'd like to have, um, Randy, you want to come up? I'm not going to pick Rebecca because her knee's busted. <laughs> If you read, if you read the, uh, the the connect, you would. We, that's how that's how I know that. Um, Vanessa, you want to come up? Um, and Jenny, you want to come up? Here it is. So we're gonna be up here. We're gonna rip off a piece of the bread and we're gonna give it to you, All right, Because grace is given, not taken. Um, you are welcome at this table. If you've never been to this table before, um, you're living, you're alive. God honors you and he wants you to be at his table with, with, with him and with us. So the table is open. I just send you guys out today, uh, letting, letting you know that, that I love you and um, every single other person here loves you all individually. And that more importantly, most importantly, our God really, really does love you. And shame has to disappear when that love is there. And fear loses its bondage when that love is there. Okay? So you guys are loved, and I, I, I pray that you guys have a blessed week.